This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Lucy, and our guest today is Susan Abramovich, who's the head of the entertainment and sports law group at Gowling in their Toronto office. I'm really excited to speak with Susan today for many reasons, but one of the reasons is her extensive experience in Canadian entertainment law. Although she's based in Toronto now, Susan has been called to the bar not only in Ontario, but also in Quebec and New York. She's covered a wide variety of deals and disputes over her 25-plus years across the entertainment space, including in music, film and television, theatre, video games, sports, and book publishing. She also frequently provides commentary to Canadian media on stories and developments related to entertainment law. Before joining the team at Gowling, Susan was head of the entertainment group at another large law firm and was a founding partner for one of Canada's leading boutique entertainment law firms. She's also trained and practiced at law firms in New York and Paris and graduated from McGill University before clerking for the Honorable Justice Nathalie of the Supreme Court of Canada. Susan also regularly lectures at the IP Institute of Canada, the Faculty of Law at Osgoode Hall, and boasts the faculties of music and law at McGill and University of Toronto. And with that, I'm delighted to welcome Susan to the podcast. Hello, Susan, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Happy to be here, Lucy. Hope your exams all went well for everyone. So I'll start with the classic, how did you get into law? Um, and it would also be great if you could speak to how you specifically got into law for creative industries. Right. Well, growing up, I was one of those kids who, you know, always had to get the gold star. And for some reason, through my career as a student, the gold star kept leading to law school. So my father was a doctor. I'm sure he wished, and I have siblings, but I think I was his last hope to, for a doctor in the family, and I dashed those um, because I was definitely someone who liked to use their their words and wasn't so keen on using my my hands and understanding the body and so on. So law school seemed almost destined for for all of those reasons. But growing up, I also was extremely interested in different kinds of arts. I played the piano quite seriously, actually, from a young age till, you know, my later teens. And I competed and I did all the exams and I actually considered it as a profession at one point. Um, I also dreamt, uh, I don't think I was particularly good at it, but I dreamt of being an actress as well. Um, I did uh, theater training and again as a kid. And so, you know, I was always interested in those areas from a personal point of view. I realized, again, on, on the acting front that that probably was not going to be the best career for me. I'm not sure I was particularly good at it. So, you know, as I had these two converging things happening, my interest in the arts personally and my destiny to become a lawyer, at one point in law school, I said, oh, it'd be so cool to be an entertainment lawyer. I have no idea what that is. Just as many law, at least when I was a law student, I had no idea what many disciplines of law in practice actually truly meant from a practical perspective. And but it sounded cool. Sounded like I might get invited to some cool parties. The and the the issues were interesting to me. So for in law school, I wrote a paper on misappropriation of personality or right to image. Um, I was in at McGill and I was studying civil law. I did get a common law degree as well, but I did it under this from a civil law perspective. And um, actually, that paper ended up getting published, which surprised me. It was my first published paper. And so, you know, it was like, wow, these are cool subjects that I'm interested in. I like law, but I really like law when it pertains to something to do with the arts. Yeah, so we actually have a lot of parallels here. Um, my dad is also a doctor. Uh, actually, both of my parents are in the medical field. I have a younger sister, and she's studying uh, life sciences right now at U of T., so she's kind of on that track as well. Uh, I'm clearly the black sheep of the family. I'm the only one who's not in science. Um, I started playing piano when I was five and I did nearly all of the exams. I think I stopped at grade nine. Um, I went to an arts high school for voice and then I went to Queens and studied opera there. Uh, and I was also involved in musical theater there as a performer, as a musician in the pit band and as a music director for a couple of shows. Uh, so we have a lot of similarities there. So I completely understand your motivations for wanting to go into entertainment law, because 
that's ultimately what I want to do. You mentioned that you had no idea what entertainment law was before getting into it, but what did you kind of expect going into it? And then having been in the industry for over 20 years now, how would you describe what it is that sports and entertainment lawyers do? Right. I had no idea what it was. It just sounded cool. And it sounded, you know, the, the one thing I knew was I kind of understood some of the some of the legal issues that might, you know, be relevant. And they seemed really interesting to me. That That's all I had. But towards the end of law school and at the beginning of my career, because I didn't do entertainment law right away, you know, if you took away the entertainment law part, I really wanted to be a litigator, which, you know, again, maybe translated a bit into my need to perform kind of thing. Again, no idea what a litigator did at the time. Everybody, you know, I watched L.A. Law. I watched, which I hear is coming back as a reboot. I watched uh, Street Legal, which came back, came and went as a reboot. So just to hopefully there's relevance of these shows in, in your, your generation's lives. And I was like, okay, yeah, I want to be a litigator. That looks fun too. So I guess when I first started pursuing the entertainment law, I would go in and say, well, you know, I'd really love to be an entertainment litigator because that would combine the two. And the answer I got, at least in Canada, because I did pursue it a, a bit in, in the U.S. as well, but ended up here, was in Canada really, and, and I can tell you to this day, you can't really specialize solely in entertainment litigation. There are some litigators who do a lot of a lot of the litigation, but entertainment litigation really comes out of an entertainment practice being at a firm and like at like a Gowlings, like at my firm, and you know, litigation issues come up and so you need a litigator. But it's it's really kind of impossible, I think, to be both an entertainment litigator and an entertainment lawyer in Canada. You're really one or the other. So th that was my first notion of what entertainment law was. Uh, skip ahead, you know, through a few chapters of my career before I became an entertainment lawyer. When I finally did, and thank you for your generosity of saying more than 20 years. It's actually more than 25 or 26 years at this point. When I first started doing it, I realized what it is, is I'm just a basic commercial lawyer doing contract work, contract law in a specific industry. And, and you know, one of the things I did before I was an entertainment lawyer was that I worked in New York at a big New York law firm. And I was doing uh, business law there. You know, one night at 3 a.m., which was a typical night of work or a typical day of work for me, I was sitting there, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's on a mining securities deal don't even ask me I, at that point I had didn't understand anything I was doing except making sure there were no typos and um I was like sitting there so miserable at 3 a.m saying okay first of all why am I working at 3 a.m secondly if I have to work at 3 a.m why can't I really enjoy what I'm doing and I I know I like law I can't deny that but like wouldn't it be so much more interesting at 3 a.m to be reviewing documents for typos that pertain to uh, underlying facts that interested me Mining did not interest me. A mine in Peru, not interesting to me. But, you know, um, an entertainment deal, sure. Um, and so that's when the spark came back after law school. Because, you know, it seemed cool to build a life in, in New York. And actually, I was in New York because they were going to transfer me into their Paris office, which they did. And I wanted to have this sort of international you know, very glamorous life. And it was okay to compromise the work as long as I was doing that. But I was sitting there, I was like, no, I really would be a much happier person, even working through the night, if the underlying facts were of more relevance to me. And that's when I started to say, you know what, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but this is short term, and I'm going to pursue it again. So that's what entertainment law is, at least for me, at least in Canada, and different people have different definitions of entertainment law and practice. Mine is, you know, I am a, an advisor to individuals and companies in the art spaces. And frankly, my practice ranges, and we can talk more about that. It's this, it started as a, in music only, and now spans, you know, sports, esports, film, TV, book publishing, video gaming, you name it, plus music. Um, so I, I'm an advisor about industry norms, deals, deal terms. And then I also have the skill of being able to draft and negotiate contracts. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what I do. There are other entertainment lawyers, as I said, who do do litigation, although I don't think there's anybody I know who specializes in the litigation. There are people who do, you know, financing and entertainment. That's a completely different discipline. There are people who do broadcasting law, which is they consider entertainment law, but again, different discipline. I really, I do some financing, but very limited, and I need a lot of assistance from my financing colleagues. And I don't do any broadcasting. So there's there actually are different definitions, but, you know, I think... What I do is the true entertainment law. So for my next question, um, if there's anything I've learned from networking, it's that the answer to this question is always, there is no typical day, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
So what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, And in pre-pandemic days, did you tend to be inside the office more or out and about with clients? Right. So typical day is different in the pandemic. I literally do the same thing every day, sit in front of my, you know, computer. And although I, you know, the work is still very varied and interesting. So I can talk to that, but I prefer to think back to the pre-pandemic day. And as a a matter of fact, I very much uh, am happy about what's happened in the pandemic because I've never liked to sit in an office. My job, my typical day was, I mean, there was definitely time and days where I had to sit in front of my desk and just plow through work. But more often than not, it was, you know, out and about. It was, you know, as much as I could do traveling to conferences or to L.A. and New York to, you know, visit with clients. It was a lot of drumming up work, a lot of not just drumming up work, more about maintaining relationships, because those relationships lead to work being coming down eventually. And not just for the purposes of getting work, also building relationships, because I lean on those relationships for information, inside information, for contacts all of which helps me do my job for my clients. So there was a lot of on the road. I would like try, I went out for lunch and dinners and drinks a lot. There's a lot of industry events, you know, live, sh- a lot of seeing live music shows, a lot of award shows, a lot of parties. I kind of got into it for all that stuff and it definitely played out that way. And I really enjoyed it. And I'm really, really missing that part of my job right now. So, and in terms of the work, which, you know, I did when I would do it, I would do it then at, you know, at a desk. And when I do it now, it's pretty much all day. The work is there again, no typical day. You're right. But it's very much, I'm busy every day. I have a lot of work. My clients call me. Some of them are looking for strategy about how to plan their deals. Some of them are looking for help connecting with people, which I only really offer as a service to people already in my world. I don't, you know, when client, new clients call me and say, can you shop my, my demo tape around? I, I don't really do that, but I love connecting people in my sphere already. So there's that. Um, I have clients right now who well, I had one who called me de- uh, desperately Friday night to spoke to them Saturday morning, new client, kind of getting messed around by a business partner. This person is a film producer, director, and he has an exciting project on the go, but there's some complications. So over the weekend, I spoke to him and I'm moving it along this morning to try and you know set it straight. So there are some litigation-like files that come up and I, I take those on and use, as I mentioned, the back uh, stop of my litigation colleagues to help me through them. You know, I have clients who are composers of very, very prominent Canadian Emmy Award winning recently shows who uh, get their music placed in other TV and film uh, situations. So I help them do that licensing. I have uh, clients who have sponsored uh, sports leagues. And during the pan, you know, there's always pandemic issues that have been arising lately. So you know, what, what does the pandemic mean for a sponsor of a sports league that's not actually playing and God knows when they'll start playing again. So I've been dealing with some of that. A lot of performance related uh, clients looking to, you know, I represent um, one particularly big orchestra slash hall that, you know, had to um, pivot a bit and did a really good job doing it. But there were some legal issues in that. I, have, I represent an award show that also used to present a live and televised version of the live, you know, presentation show. They had to pivot as well. So some of my work this this in the last nine months has been about COVID pivoting, but then other, you know, I represent a prominent uh, television personality and productions, you know, getting going on a new show. So, you know, that's the same as I would have been doing if there was no pandemic. So th- those are some examples, but, you know, I could talk about that for the full hour, all the different kinds of things that I do have on my desk at any given time. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of the work now is just kind of COVID focused rather than actual substantive work compared to um, last year, obviously. Um, but in terms of substantive work, uh, what is the bread and butter of your practice area? So what kind of work takes up most of your time or what are typical matters that come across your desk that you deal with on a regular basis? I should say, for and I, maybe I'm lucky or unique, but I find although there is COVID-related issues that, that are arising in my practice, I would not say it's the majority of my work right now. You know, maybe in March, everybody was panicked and asking me a lot of questions about force measure or whatever, but... Or, or, and, you know, then later, three months later, it was, you know, how do you get a COVID waiver um, signed? But, but, but really it's, I would not say it's the majority of my work. The majority of my work is stuff that would have been happening regardless. So, you know, again, a lot of like, I'm just looking at my to-do list here, which by the way, I have in during COVID, I've been doing it by hand. I have a literally handwritten to-do list 
um, which I never did before. It's so weird. But um, so on my to-do list, I represent um, actually a prominent guy uh, who's very deeply involved with a particular very successful artist and has a lot of uh, work on the go and intertwined business relationships. So um, this is a relatively new client, um, less than a year, and I'm just trying to get in there and understand what these intertwined relationships are and what we can do with them. And there's ongoing work, uh, you know, signings of, of upcoming songwriters and produ and executive producing uh, other artists' albums. There's a, a, you know, a bunch of work there, both trying to understand, because sometimes, you know, your clients, and hopefully in law school, when you do practical exercises, they, or for fact patterns, it's not like these things are laid out for you. You know, here are the 10 facts you need to process in order to do, and here's what the end game should be. Like you get a big blob on your desk. And frankly, worse than a big blob, you get a very small blob and you're missing 90% of the blob. And you have to go out and figure out what's missing and find it. So that's part of the project for this client, just figuring out what the business is, what the deals are, what rights have they already acquired, because I need to know that in order to help advise them on going forward. So that's interesting. Another one is, uh, again, as I mentioned, the award show that I'm working on. So they did have to pivot. But basically, there's all kinds of normal stuff for that show. Like we're just finalizing the television broadcast license. So I'm, and it's a monster, huge fat document. So I'm helping to, you know, finish negotiating that. There's in production, there's various documents that, that I need to give input on, like release you know, weird releases with universities for the right to use a photograph and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm representing, um, let's see, oh, another client, a music client who put out a huge project for the sesquicentennial of Canada in 2017. It was a really ambitious project. It pretty much took up the majority of my time over a couple of years. And uh, it was released, and so now we're 2020, and there's some interest in re-releasing and sort of repackaging and re-releasing, so we're looking at that. As I mentioned, we're kind of battling out a sponsorship of a sports league, but, you know, it looks like we may be reaching deal terms, which have to get done by the end of the year for various accounting reasons, so that's interesting. Um, I have a copyright infringement matter, unfortunately, uh, launched against, it's not litigation yet, but some claims made against one of my clients who I a beloved clients of mine and you know the person did not copy but there are similarities so we're kind of wading through that those are some of the things I'm dealing with and out of that work what kind of work do you enjoy doing the most I it's I would say it's not so much the work it's the uh client <laughs> To be honest, you know, I, I, there's a certain kind of client that I just really have great a great vibe with. Obviously, an appreciative client is always a good person to, you know, is always appreciated. And a lot of my clients are actually very appreciative, so it's very rewarding for me. But, you know, I like, you know, going in and helping a client who is, in, you know, intelligent, business-minded, but may not understand the specifics of this particular industry and being able to educate them and then having that sort of like aha moment where they truly understand how the business works. I actually still like getting into contracts and redrafting and figuring out the puzzle of a contract and how to draft more elegantly. Like that's something that maybe some lawyers as they get into their senior years of practice don't really have to worry about because there's lots of juniors who can do it. But I there, there are days when I say, oh, I can't wait to crack open my computer and tackle that contract, you know? So I, I, I actually surprised myself because I wouldn't have expected me to be into that. I'm into, you know, I would have thought I'd like more of the, the top of the pile, looking down sort of strategic part, but I actually like the nuts and bolts as well. You know, litigation issues are stressful, you know, even when they're not your own. Um, but you know, it is rewarding when you can come up with a solution without having to worry about going to litigation. So, so those are some of my favorites. What you said about, um, figuring out the puzzle of a contract. I, I mean, I feel that so much. Um, I love contract law and you're right. It is just like you said, it's cracking open that contract and figuring out the puzzle of it. Um, and yeah, I'm very much a detail-oriented person, so that's right up my alley. And I love proofreading, so yeah, really up my alley. So what you're what you're gonna find though when you get into entertainment law, um, depending on your client, like the one thing about clients in the entertainment world is there's some big you know clients who bear no expense on legals, and but more often than not, especially when you start out your career, you're gonna have clients who don't have a lot of resources. They appreciate the value of your work. 
and want to pay you, but might only be able to afford an hour or two of your time. And so one of the big, big challenges, I'll, t I'll warn you, um, about doing work for those kind of clients, especially contract, you know, drafting contracts is that takes a long time. And, you know, to do something in an hour or two, you, you might have to cut corners and choosing where to cut corners for that client is a very difficult decision, especially if you've been trained like I was at, you know, these big New York law firms, which, you know, slap your risks with rulers if you forget if you have a typo in it, you know. So I had to kind of, I mean, I'm happy to have had that training for sure, because, you know, you have to start knowing what you're cutting, as opposed to not knowing what you're cutting. Um, but once you have that training, and then you go in and you're like, okay, I cannot spend that time proofreading, you know, every single typo. And I, I that, that part's very hard for me, too, because I have to have a perfect document. I just grew up in an era where you couldn't, you cannot have a typo in a document. But you, you really have to learn how to make choices. You have to know what choices you're making. So you need the good education. But then you have to, like, learn the skill of, okay, there are 20 things I would love to tackle in this. The client can only afford me to tackle five, which are the most important five for that person. That's the hard, that's the hardest challenge in entertainment law. Right. So um, this brings to mind a case file that I did for a client pro bono. Um, and she wanted to start an employment agency in the middle of a pandemic for cruise entertainers. Um, she used to be a cruise entertainer herself. She used to dance for cruise lines. Um, and she wanted to start an agency to audition and employ um, artists like musicians and dancers. Um, and she came to us with her employment contract, her draft version that she wanted her artists to sign upon being accepted into her agency. Um, it was something that she had pulled from just Googling what employment contracts look like. But we only had a two-week turnover at the clinic I was at. So instead of drafting the entire contract for her, in her advice letter, we highlighted the boilerplates and explained what they meant and what they were. Um, and then we mentioned any extra clauses that we thought she should add instead of actually drafting the contract for her word for word. Um, we just didn't have the time because, you know, we were two student advisors doing this on top of our, our uni work. And then obviously she was coming to a free clinic for this advice. So she didn't have the resources to hire a lawyer who had drafted for her. Um, so, yeah, this that's what our supervising solicitor instructed us to do. And it's, it feels incomplete, right? Like we learn as lawyers and as law students you know, the more complete you can be, the the better job you're going to do. And, what, and also you're, you're in fear of what you're like, that you're going to miss something really major. And so it's, it's, it's a very difficult exercise. I can only compare it maybe to your exams where, you know, sure, you could talk about 50 things, but they only give you two or three hours. And so you're going to have to make choices. That's the, the equivalent skill set. That's good. Yeah. Linking our exams to real life practical experiences. There you go. Because I, often I bet you thought for a minute or two while you were doing your exams, how is this ever going to help me in life? Well, there you go. Exactly. Uh, I'd also like to talk about your regional legal expertise. I understand that you're a member of the Ontario, Quebec and New York bars. Um, you talked a little bit about your civil law background at McGill and your New York training. Um, but do you get to use your regional expertise in your day-to-day -day a lot? Not really. So <laughs> I pursued, and a lot of people ask me about the New York bar and whether it's a good credential to have and so on. And I got my bars purely functionally, right? I started out in Quebec, in Montreal, working at a law firm. And so I got, and, and I thought that was going to be my life. I am, I'm, a, if I'm from Montreal. I'm a lover of Montreal. I can't believe I don't live in Montreal. But, but so when I started my career, that's what I thought. I, so I got my Quebec bar. And then... My next one was, well, I need an international adventure. I need to live in Paris. And the way there was working in New York because I had to train there first. So once I was in New York, you know, you kind of like I, if I could have not done my bar, I probably would have not done my bar. But I was there and, then, you know, they were like, well, you're here with a view to a long term career with a New York law firm. You need your New York bar. And so I'm like, OK, so I got it. And then, you know, then I got frustrated working in New York and Paris and repatriated myself and chose Toronto thinking it was a temporary stopover. But, you know, once I was in Toronto, I'm like, well, I have, you know, now I'm actually pretending like I'm a real lawyer. So I had to do that. So it was really, I got the bars purely functionally. There was no strategy to it at all. I just, I had to, the, you know, I would have done the French bar if they made me, but they didn't make me. So I didn't get it when I was in Paris. So that's why I have them. Of course, having gone through all three of them and all three of them were painful in their own way. Uh, like I'm never, you know, once I got it, I didn't want to let any of them lapse. So I do keep up my membership because I never want to have to do them again. 
but I don't pay uh, insurance. Like I'm not insured to practice New York law, for example. So I have to be very careful not to practice New York law. And frankly, you know, I, I really don't know a ton about New York law. I studied for the bar, point whatever. I guess I got in 1994. So do the math. Um, you know, issues come up. So for example, in one of my files right now, one of the contracts is subject to New York law. And, you know, that was a contract that we had to look at, you know, possibly going into litigation and interpreting it. And so I hired a friend, a colleague who I've worked with before, who I like very much as a New York lawyer to help interpret under New York law. And frankly, at the end of the end, there were force majeure issues. So actually, it was actually topical about the pandemic that we had to decide, okay, you know, how does force majeure work in the in the in New York, as opposed to Quebec or Ontario, where it works differently as well. So that was interesting, but I certainly would not have been competent or insured to advise on how to interpret the force majeure clause um, under New York law. So I really don't use it. I think as a credential, it looks makes me look more credible um, and connected. It shouldn't, but you know, if that helps that way, great. And do you get to do a lot of cross-border work anyway? Yes. And in fact, you know, I don't even call it cross-border work because, I mean, yes, I have a lot of clients all over the place, either doing deals with people all over the world or or all over the world and doing deals in Canada. So, yes, it is cross-border in that way. Um, but the, you know, the entertainment industry, you know, is, is well, first of all, I've, ha- I've been lucky enough to have clients who have deals all over the world. But, you know, even those who don't have deals all over the world, you know, it's very typical to have deals in, you know, that are with New York, L.A. or, or Nashville based companies, uh, particularly in the music industry. And so you're constantly, you know, you, you don't necessarily you, t- you tell the client the limits of your expertise. And, you know, that means for me, oh, well, you have to explain away. Yes, I actually am a member of the New York Bar, but I'm not, you know, here to opine on the law of New York and. Or, and I certainly am not called in California. So you have to explain in the entertainment world that these contracts come up all the time that are subject to another law that you're not nece- is not necessarily your jurisdiction. And hopefully with your expertise, you're able to triage whether there are and which are the issues that you actually need local advice on. Like in the case of figuring out what does force measure mean under New York law? Like, and how does it affect your right to terminate a contract? That one was like, yeah, 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 slam dunk. We need to get a New York lawyer in. If the contract is just negotiating, okay, here are the deal terms for uh, a recording artist with a record company based in New York and that's subject to New York law, like there are very, there aren't really issues that come up in that context that would be specific to New York law. The issues really are about being specific to the industry. So while I explain that to the client and leave open the option for the client to hire local advice, to get local advice based on the law of the contract, um, typically what they're looking for is advice on industry standards, which because of the breadth of my, the geographical breadth of my experience, I feel comfortable giving. You mentioned that um, you started out in music law and then you expanded into uh, other sectors in the entertainment industry. Is there a sort of common career path for entertainment lawyers? No, for sure not. And what I always advise students who are interested or young, you know, new lawyers who are interested in getting in I always say, you know, just get the puck in the crease. You know what I mean? Like, don't worry about the perfect job. Get in somehow. And once you're in the industry, even if it's not a legal position, even if it's like a contract administrator position, once you get your puck in somehow, you know, then you can parlay that. Then you've become an entertainment lawyer or an entertainment person. And you can use that experience to sort of then further home in on what you might like more in a particular industry or a particular job. So no, there's no typical one way in. Uh, My way in was through, um, so I, you know, I was working in New York and Paris, decided I wanted to repatriate myself to Canada at the time, you know, because of personal reasons, we decided that Toronto was the place to go. So I started contacting uh, entertainment lawyers. And at the time, I wasn't sure like I wasn't specific to music. I was interested in music, but I was also open to film and TV. I, I didn't even realize that you specialized at the time in one or the other. And so I just put out feelers to names. I did some research and I, and I started getting interviews, which I hadn't. We sort of skipped over the early days of me trying to become an entertainment lawyer, but nobody would really was really particularly interested. And I kept saying, why not? You know, and by the way, I wasn't saying this. I was just sending my resume blindly without personal contact and assuming that a great resume would get me a job, which worked 
when you were dealing with, you know, big New York law firms. So I thought it would work in the entertainment industry and it absolutely did not. Getting a job in entertainment is much more about the network, the schmoozing, the, you know, getting to know people, being there, showing your interest. And it's not about the gold medal necessarily. The gold medal is a, a great add-on, but it's not in itself going to get you the job, uh, which is what I learned the hard way. Um, but so by, by the time I had finished my New York and New Paris corp corporate commercial experience, people were more interested because, well, first of all, there was the glamour of, you know, me having been, you know, made more credible by virtue of working at these firms, which is stupid, but whatever. And, uh, and also having a couple of years of corporate commercial, good corporate commercial training under my belt, you know, even if it was dotting I's and crossing T's on a mining deal at 3am, um, you know, there was a couple of years there of training, of big corporate commercial deal training. And so people were more interested in meeting with me at the time. And uh, so my way in was through um, a guy named Graham Henderson, fantastic mentor. He basically made me an entertainment lawyer. He had been a McCarthy's partner and left because he felt uh, that he couldn't, you know, it wasn't right for the clients to do it from the perch of a big firm. He needed, you know, you could only really be a good entertainment lawyer if you did it in a boutique, which we can talk about later because I'm obviously doing it at a big firm now. Um, but at the time he had set up his own thing and I basically called him. I remember I was on an, living in Paris, but on an extended business trip, living in a hotel called the Royalton in New York. It was so silly for like three months. But anyways, I used the perch of New York to sort of fly into Toronto and, and I met with him. And as soon as I met with him, I knew I had to work with him. And I was like, it took, I had to put on the uh, full court press because he was nervous about taking on responsibility of another lawyer when, you know, he really was on his own. And I told him, no, 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 don't worry. This is going to work out. And it, it did. He was a great mentor and he only did music law. And I'm like, great, I'll only do music law then. And he taught me, he taught me so many things about how to practice, how to deal with clients, um, you know, how to draft contracts. Um, we're still very good friends. So that's how I got into music law. And he was a firm believer that if you did, if you ventured beyond the, your entertainment silo, his was music, that you weren't doing your clients a service. You were, you would not, you would dilute your expertise. And so that's what I believed. And so in 1995, I became a music lawyer working under Graham Henderson. And uh, that's what I did. And then a few years later, his former law partner from McCarthy's left McCarthy's and joined the firm part-time because he also wanted to get into production of um, a, a show that his wife's production company was producing called Degrassi. And so he was a television producer and then, but wanted to keep his foot in the door of a, a law firm. So he came and of course his work was more film and TV. And I was like, oh, you know, clients come to me with this and I feel uncomfortable because I don't have a, somebody mentoring me in that area. Can you, can you help me with that? And so, you know, that's how I started doing a bit of film and TV. So that was mid nineties and then slow, you know, early two thousands. And then all of a sudden the music industry went into the toilet in the two thousands you know, Napster came up and everybody figured out that they wanted to illegally download music. Music was too expensive in their view. And it was easier to, you know, they wanted to have everything, in, you know, they all, all you can eat music, which of course we do now um, under business models that work and that pay to some degree the artist. Uh, but at the time, that's what people wanted. There just were no business models for that. And so they went to the dark world of illegal. And at the time I said to myself, okay, this is really bad. First of all, I have no idea what's going to happen to the music industry. Plus I was watching music companies and artists having to reinvent themselves because of course, you know, sales, the old way of selling records wasn't working anymore. And so a lot of um, agile companies and artists started to realize, wait, there's, we need to find other ways to make money. And those other ways were all kinds of putting together, you know, their brand and using their brand with audio, more audio visual projects and maybe doing some acting and getting into, you know, not thinking that lending your brand or your music to um, advertising products or sponsorship, maybe that's not such an evil thing. Whereas in the seventies, I think it was considered a little more evil and not pure. And so it all became this mishmash. And one day I woke up with an epiphany and said, wait a second, all entertainment media is converging into one thing you know, whether it's music, film, TV, whatever. And that one thing I thought at the time was it's all converging into a video game. And so I can't just be a music lawyer. I, I need to do all entertainment just so that I can service the client because that's where it's going. And of course, that sounds a bit trite right now, 
maybe did, everything didn't converge quite into a video game. Although you look at social media, social media is kind of a video game, and you know, esports is a video game. And but I guess my point was, people were not going to continue to make their living or exploit their art through the prism of a silo anymore. It was all coming together. And I think that's true. And so true that when I say it, I don't know, some of your listeners might think, okay, duh, Susan. But at the time, it was not so duh, Susan, right? It was everybody thought, no, TV is TV and your music, your TV, your film, and you're an author. And okay, fine, somebody might option your book for a movie. That's the limited crossover. Somebody might license your music for a TV show. So there was always that kind of crossover, but not a music artist, you know, is also an influencer, is also a TV star is also, you know, getting him to bed with Wrigley's gum to do all kinds of promotions that tie into the music and so on and so forth. Or or a brand ambassador or or have their own brand of clothing and merchandise, you know, like take a OVO and Drake's brand. So there was a moment there where I'm like, okay, I better start knowing how to do all of this because it's all coming together and I'm not going to properly service my client if I say, well, I'll take care of your music stuff, but I don't know the TV and film stuff, so you should go over there. You know, it wasn't just to capture the work. It was also, I wanted to think holistically about my client's stuff. Right. So you sort of have to be a one-stop shop for clients because that's the best way you can service them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, not everybody went my route. There are still lawyers who really say, look, I just do music and, you know, or I just do film and TV. If you want music, go to Susan, which is fine. I'll do that. I'll take clients like that. But that's just, that was my road. So when you ask the question, you know, is there a typical way into the industry or is there a typical way people practice? The answer is obviously very much no. So I'm conscious that we're winding down to the end of our time together, but I'd like to ask a few questions about the industry itself. We saw how quick the music industry was to adapt with the pandemic by leaning into animated music videos, which I thought was a really cool idea. It really sort of, you know, pushed the boundaries of creativity. But from a legal perspective, um, what are some of the main challenges and main innovations to have come out of the pandemic? Well, I'm not sure I love all, some of them. In, in my world, the main thing that I saw, I mean, obviously animation was great because you don't have to be in the same room to do that. So yes, animation was booming. But you know, where a lot of people went was to try to turn live performance into something pandemic friendly. And that was very, very hard, you know, because we all got Zoom fatigue and, you know, watching, I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm happy to have learned that you can't actually replace live performance. I think people now realize that there is something about being someplace live, sharing an experience with an audience, and even without the audience, just being in front of somebody performing, whether it's, you know, theater or music or whatever, in front of you live that cannot be reproduced and will never go away. And I think once we feel comfortable going out to see things live, and if people have survived this, you know, lull and being able to make their living, um, which is a big if, um, I think the world is going to appreciate live performance even more than we did. I think we took it for granted. So, you know, what came out of, you know, from a legal perspective, a lot of my clients pivoted to um, online performance. And I think it was a free for all at the beginning, which bothered me a bit. I mean, obviously, I wanted people to get out there and do something. And, you know, even lawyers did that. It's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, we have to have webinars. We have to have the webinars and everybody's doing webinars. And then we got like, okay. Uh, nobody wants to listen to the webinars anymore, you know. Um, so we did the same thing, and you know, for our own, in our own way. But the problem at the beginning was it was a free for all because there's all kinds of rights issues. You can't just go online and what well, like right now you're taping me, right? So that people so that people can replay it. If this was live, that would be one thing. But the fact that you're taping me has all kinds of other rights implications for the when when if I was of course not for me speaking and I will sign away my rights here. But like if I sang a song right now, somebody's, you know, if I sang Sweet Jane on this and you recorded it and then you let let it be available to your students, leaving aside possible copyright uh, defenses for educational purposes, I'll leave that aside, like you'd need to clear the rights to Sweet Jane, right? And so I think a lot of people forgot about that. <laughs> and so that, you know, slowly but surely people were like, look, we, I know we're all in it together and this is so sweet and everybody's looking for content and connection. But, you know, we can't just throw away the baby with the bathwater. Like, there are rights issues here. 
people are going to have to learn how to make money from this. So that was something that I thought was very interesting during the pandemic. And I'm happy to see that although it took a few months, eventually people were like, okay, um, no, we need to learn how to do it right, which of course led the way to more webinars for me. You can check them out on uh, the Galax website about how, you know what exactly do you have to clear. But it, it's, it's actually been a great exercise because I think there's been lack of clarity of what really needs to get cleared for you know doing things audio visually and audio only online whether it's live or on demand or streamed on demand like it's a complicated area and so we've had to very quickly get in there and parse it all so i guess that's a good thing that came out of it legally speaking i just kind of wanted to talk about performance rights for a second you touched on that a little bit just now for the listeners can you outline what kinds of rights are available for performers whether they're ip or employment rights Right. Well, my clients don't deal, you know, very few of them are employees. So, <laughs> and I'm also not an employment lawyer, so I don't, I don't want to talk to that. But like, I, I'd say employment issues came up very rarely for my, my artist clients. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, if they had employment situations, they'd have some protections and maybe be able to access some government resources. But you know, artists are, for the most part, independent contractors and, you know, or their own, their, their sole proprietorships, their businesses. And that, you know, if nobody wants to buy their wares, which, you know, for a lot of them, live performance, again, due to the decline in the music industry, if you're talking about music performers, live was a, a lifeblood of how people made their living. And when you blow up live, uh, there are businesses that were, you know, don't have any income. So um, there actually were not very many employment rights or protections available to, to those clients. You know, in terms of as performers, they, you know, again, they're not just performers. Like some of these artists own their own songwriting. They may own their own recordings. So, you know, basically they rely on copyright. Copyright is very important. It protects all those things. It protects also performers' rights and their, their right to remuneration for their performances. So when music was being played online, you know, if you're set up with the right collection agencies and know what you want to collect, and this is part of what people needed to learn to, to understand a little bit more carefully because of the drying up of the other more traditional sources of income, you know, there's money to be made. If you're a prolific songwriter and your song's being performed on on Zoom performances all over the world, well, there's money there for you. That's, uh, you know, public performance of your musical compositions and that you, you know, in Canada, music composers affiliate with SOCAN to make sure that they're, you know, wherever those performances are happening, money's being collected and paid to the performer, to the songwriter. Same thing with performance rights. Rights to remuneration in your performances as a performer are not uh, as uh, widespread geographically. There are certain territories that um, have them, some don't, like in the U.S. When, if I recorded a music, um, a performance of a song and it's played on the radio, there are no royalties paid to the performer. There's royalties paid to the songwriter, but not the performer. In Canada, about 10 or 12 years ago, we brought in what's called neighboring rights. So there are royalties paid to the performer, but only in certain cases. Um, and, you know, if it's performed over the internet, there's different rules that apply. So th there might be money there as well. But again, this is money that's trickling in um, and does not make up for the loss of, you know, other sources of revenue that dried up because of the pandemic. And then just from a practical perspective, um, does remuneration tend to go straight to the artist or are there typically collecting agencies in between? Depends. And, you know, there's also record labels and music publishers in between. It depends on how an artist and songwriter is set up and what and what you're collecting for. And this is where a lot of people get very frustrated for, with the music industry is that, you know, cop copyright isn't one thing. You know, there isn't one source of income. There's all kinds of rights. There's a public performance right. There's a reproduction right. There's a synchronization right. And all those things are different sources of income. That's great because it means you can make all kinds of different kinds of money from exploiting your music. On the other hand, it's very complicated in terms of, you know, if you're a user of music, who do you go to to clear the rights? And if you're the owner of the music, where do, how do I collect? So it, the answer is it depends on your contractual relationships and it depends on what kind of income. So let's say you, you don't have a music publisher, which is a company that takes care of exploiting your musical compositions, the songs that you write. And let's say you don't have a record deal with a, a record company, which is the a business that, that takes care of your recordings and perform, recorded performances. So if you're on your own uh, and you're a music performer, then you want to make sure that you're signed up with a collective that collects these performance royalties in your performance. That's I called neighboring rights just before. You're going to want to make sure that anybody who's using recordings that you own 
comes to you and clears rights to use them. And uh, so those are the main, you know, the, you know, or anybody wants to put your recording on their record or in their film or TV comes to you and clears it with you. And that the money would come directly from a clearance. You know, you'd say, I'll clear, I'll give you permission to use it in exchange for whatever the money is. Um, so for the latter, you need to directly contract and collect the money yourself. For the former, neighboring rights, you need a collective to help you collect it. If you're a songwriter, then as I said, you have to affiliate with something like a, a collective like SoCan, which collects money from people who publicly perform your musical compositions. So that's over the internet or on the radio or on TV. If you, somebody wants to use your musical composition in a, a TV show, so, you know, or they ask you to compose the theme song to a TV show, that's a contract that you enter into and you collect the money directly. Or if they take an existing song and they want to sync, like if this podcast was actually audiovisual and I did my Sweet Jane, you, you, UFT would need to go get a sync license from the from Lou Reed's estate or his publisher, whoever owns those rights, and clear a sync license, and that the money would flow directly. Um, for somebody who wants to take my song and put it on a record, uh, whether it's digital or physical, that's called, that's exercising the reproduction right in my musical composition. And either they can come to me directly, or if I choose to affiliate with a collective that does mechanical licensing, which is what it's called, like CMRA or SOCAN, uh, which acquired a company called SODRAC, uh, then that would be collecting the money through a collective. So you could do that either way, either direct or through a collective. But as you can see, there's a lot of sources of income and a lot of complications. So, you know, um, and we've tried over the pandemic and before and be, and after the pandemic, we'll continue to try and clarify what all those sources are and what the choices are, of where you can affiliate or how you can do it. And then moving away from uh, the music industry, so because of the pandemic, we've seen a bit of a boom in the video game and esports sectors. Do you think that's here to stay beyond the pandemic now that we have vaccines being rolled out? Oh, for sure. First of all, video games were hot before. They're going to be hot now. They're going to be hot later. Esports is a little more complicated and interesting that there's been a rise in esports. It also depends on how you define esports because esports, by definition, was taking something that was solitary and indoors. <laughs> and bringing it to the masses as a performance thing, which you would think would not be doing well right now, yet it, 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 it is in its own way. Now, again, you know, people aren't going to venues buying tickets and sitting with, you know, close, close together, breathing all over each other to see it. So esports is booming. And I always define esports more broadly than going to a stadium and watching people play video games as sport. I always define it more as, you know, video gaming, viewing video gaming viewing you know i haven't actually gotten my nice you know words for for describing it in a succinct way but it's it's people viewing video games and so you know watching somebody compete in video games can be done from your own house in a solitary way that's that's good for the pandemic or good for surviving the pandemic and so that's really thrived and it's surprising that people i mean and that's this may be generational but it's surprising to me that people want to watch people compete at video gaming, but they do. And so it has done very well. And I think it will continue. To, it was doing really well pre-pandemic. Like it was start, I had clients who were starting to introduce it into schools as like official competitive sporting uh, activities like baseball and football and hockey and basketball. And so it was moving ahead quickly before. And I think it'll move ahead quickly after. And I think people see that, it, you know, whether it's done in a stadium with other people around or in other fashions, it's, it's here to stay. Thinking about the entertainment industry from a more macro point of view, when I think of entertainment, I tend to think of just film and TV or music. Um, so, you know, Hollywood and L.A. But then there's also theater, sports, fine arts, book publishing, video games. Um, so what does the Canadian entertainment landscape look like compared to, say, the States or the U.K.? Um, it's in terms of the disciplines or the kinds of entertainment, it's the same, you know, we're strong in all of those areas. And I have clients in all of those areas. The, the, the business models are a little different, you know, unlike in Canada, the US doesn't need to um, support in this quite the same way, Canadian content and, you know, funding of regions and so on. There are, there are tax credits for, you know, television, film production in certain states. And, and areas to to encourage leaving the ones that where everybody goes um 
but and but you know, uh, the, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a co-production treaty with other countries, at least not with Canada, because it doesn't need to. You know, so Canada is a bit. The model is a bit different uh, because the government has chosen over the years to support the creation of art and Canadian-specific art, whatever that means at a given time, of course. You know, does it mean using Canadian personnel or does it mean Canadian stories? And that, you know, that's always been a bit of a debate in political policy circles. But it's it's pretty much the same, you know. There are centers of production, like L.A. and New York and London and Toronto. Um, so different regions of the different countries may have more or less. But uh, I don't, you know, I think... I do work in, in all of those places, and um, I have friends who do work in all those places, and our, our lives are more similar than my life, my professional life is with lawyers in other areas. And I guess the rights are pretty similar as well, because maybe Canadian uh, entertainment rights were built on the U.S. or the U.K.? Uh, yes, although there are, there definitely are differences, so that's why I go back to, you know, be careful, you'll... As an entertainment lawyer, you will be called upon to look at contracts that are subject to those laws or in, uh, and other countries' laws. But if you're actually trying to interpret um, copyright, you'll have some instincts, but there are differences. I, I love, I, I don't know if we have time for a quick story, but I once, I represented it a, a few years ago, the biggest recording artist in, in Portuguese history in Portugal. He was like the Bruce Springsteen of Portu Portugal. And you know, I connected with him because I had actually spoken at a conference in Portugal and his uh, girlfriend and now wife was a young lawyer who saw me. She was in the audience. She said, OK, you got to hire this lawyer. So I did. And I met up with him when he was in New York. And then I went to visit him in, in Lisbon and, and Porto. And uh, he said, you know, he showed me his contract. He said, please help me. And his contracts were all what we would call kind of baby bandy contracts. And I'm like, OK, these made sense when you first started your career. But now you're like, you know, you're huge. They should have morphed into what somebody of your stature should have had. And so, um, you know, I, I read the contracts and, of course, I was reading translations of the Portuguese and it was very stilted as a translation often is. But I read it. I'm like, I don't see where the grant of rights in your digital, you know, like electronic transmission of your music is. It's not in here. It must be a gap in the translation. And so I'm like, look, I'm not a Portuguese lawyer, but and it must be a translation thing. Let's get a Portuguese lawyer to look at it in Portuguese in the right language. And under Portuguese law, maybe there's some weirdness under Portuguese law that you don't need special words to grant electronic rights as opposed to rights to physical records. And I took it to a Portuguese lawyer. That was an example where I'm like, I think I need help here locally. And they confirmed my instinct, even from the crappy translation, the record company had never used the right words to get his electronic rights to his music. It was fantastic. It gave us so much leverage because they were busy you know, digital, it was at the time, digital downloads more than streaming was important, but they, that, that was the bulk of the sales of his music. And I'm like, guys, you don't have, you're doing something that you don't have the rights to. Let's sit down and talk. And I renegotiated all his contracts. And with that story, that's the end of our time. So thank you so much, Susan, for uh, taking the time to speak with me today and for sharing your thoughts and experiences with me as well as with the listeners. You're very welcome. Have a great break, everybody. Looking forward to the light at the end of the tunnel and you guys getting back into class for real. Um, so have a happy holiday. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.